Greetings, my friend. What you now possess is perhaps the rarest drink known to mankind. It is Armagnac brandy kissed by smoky scotch casks. Over five generations, as empires and nations rose and fell and rose again, this brandy has slumbered. It represents an opportunity to taste ages past through a liquid whose very existence is miraculous. Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey, where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. Raj Bhakta is one of those personalities that I just love to have on this podcast. A man with a lot of great stories and callings, which he has embraced with lots of passion as a well-established entrepreneur, former contestant on a popular NBC show, The Apprentice, to being a candidate for a seat in Congress. But for this lover of spirits in the night, giving you my Springsteen reference of the week a little early on the show today, Raj was the chief steward and founded the popular and full disclosure, my favorite rye whiskey brand, Whistlepig. Now in his latest adventure after exiting Whistlepig and buying a beautiful farm and Green Mountain College in Vermont, he also has a farm in Florida and a chateau that he's working on in France. He is working on getting the millions of whiskey drinkers and those of us that enjoy an ancient Armagnac, we'll tell you more about that, to get excited about the next new spirit, simply called Bacta Brandy, which more specifically is an Armagnac brandy blend with vintages ranging from 1868 to 1970, 50 different years. So before I totally geek out on the details, let me welcome a true entrepreneur to Financially Speaking. We've got great taste and tastes that are great. Welcome, Raj. Mitch Slater, great to be here. Pleasure, such a pleasure to have you here. So Raj, we like to take people first through the journey of how successful entrepreneurs got to where they are today. So maybe uh, take us a few years back to your childhood, your own yellow brick road that eventually led you to the beautiful farm in Vermont and the college you're sitting at right now up there as well. Well, I, I grew up, I'd say it was a pretty unconventional childhood. I, my father was an Indian immigrant. My mother, an uh, immigrant from Ireland. You know, he was like many, I guess, Gujarati, which is a particular area in business people, business culture, I would say, generally mercantile people. And my mother, Irish Catholic, I would say, of a medieval strain. So you had this unusual dichotomy in the house and growing up in suburban Philadelphia, Montgomery County, you know, very conservative area. And, you know, we think we're the only like, it's not mixed race, but, you know, mixed color marriages in the neighborhood, that's for sure. And that instilled in me a love of business and a sense of what can be accomplished in this country. And my mother put the fear of God in me, I guess. 
Well, that's that's always important to have a good mix. Every every great relationship has an accelerator and a break. I've found that in business and I've found that in marriage as well. So uh, I think that's really, really important. You know, one of my main takeaways from a recent interview with Guy Raz, host of How I Built This, is how so many of today's great new business owners have had major setbacks and failures. In fact, they don't really call them failures. In fact, I had a guest recently refer to it as the F word, wouldn't even say it, before reaching their greatest success. So you've experienced, to, to say the least, a very colorful, a very unique arc that has now led you to Bakta Farms. And I know our audience listening would love to hear what you've learned from the many different paths you've explored and where you found the resilience to keep forging ahead and maybe talk a little bit about some of those past experiences as well. Yeah, the whole concept of failing before succeeding is has gotten a lot of conversation, hasn't it? We hear that, I don't want to, you know, some, it was in vogue to have gone and talked about how much you failed as a, almost, you know, a resume builder. I really know what I'm doing because I've screwed up a lot, which sounds counterintuitive, right? But a lot of, you know, a lot of people were, you know, there was this thing in the zeitgeist that you want to, you know, don't shy away from failure because it's our natural instinct to want to walk away from failure. Here's my thought on it. The, and then, by the way, now we have other things like our President Trump, you know, who won't admit to failure ever when, you know, in the face of it. So you have these two different pieces. For me, I feel like almost every, every success that I've had came from failing at what I was trying before, because it was always through like a low point that I developed the focus that said, okay, you really, whatever you've been doing hasn't been working. You've got to focus right now. This is a key point. You can't keep going, bumbling along like this and jumping along and then moving to the next shiny thing. You've really got to focus. You've really got to see this through. And there were a couple of those moments that happened to me. One before I did a successful hotel development with my with my family my father in particular in uh, in Colorado in Vail I was about 27 years old and then I hit another one right when I was about 33 that and then the next thing I did was launch Whistlepig and I went through a bruising fight for control of Whistlepig which has elements of I mean big success but it has elements of failure and that it didn't happen exactly the way that I wanted to which is leading to Bakta, the Brandy Project, which is, I think, something altogether superior on every front than anything that's ever come to the market in the history of the spirits business. So that's good. Yeah, no, that is good. And, and I want to talk more about that. I want to let people know that you ran for Congress because I think it's really interesting because that that's an experience that running for public office is, is very hard to explain to people unless you've actually gone through it. I mean, I only, I only ran for my local board of ed and I ran unopposed once, but you know, a bit of a contested race the first time, but what'd you, what'd you take away from that experience? And, and you did, you did something unique, which, you know, I think in this world, you have to figure out a way to stand out that included elephants and a mariachi band. Yeah. Well, Mitch, there were a number of things that I learned from the race, but well, I'll, I'll tell you my takeaway lessons. One, you got to get your timing right. You know, timing in life is absolutely key. You come with 
I liken it to you can look at Michael Phelps in the water with the riptide running against them is going to look like somebody who can't swim. Mm -hmm. And somebody has got the tide going with them can be like a real, I would say like a whale, but that's the wrong analogy because they're in the water. But let's say like a, a completely uncoordinated schmo and he's going to look genius if the water's going with him. And it's the same thing in life. So I got a big timing lesson, big lesson in a bunch of funny stories, right? The big lesson is if you want to get, you have to get, it's all about really your ability to get a message out there. And that is publicity. Right. It's funny when I was running, I wanted to do a, well, it was a reality TV show that got pitched to me. And I thought it was a good idea, right? It was, the idea was see Raj run. Mm-hmm. And I went to some of the Republicans, some of the higher ups in the state and the, at the federal level at the RNC. And I told them the idea. They're like, oh, no, 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 you don't want to do that. You don't want to show them how the sausage is made. And I happened to call Donald Trump on this. And I, you know, I asked him what he thought about it. And I remember he's like, kid, you know, Raj, don't even think about it. Do it. Do it, Raj. And I didn't take his advice because I listened to the experts. And uh, that's another lesson that I learned uh, in that race. Be very wary of experts. I'm very, very wary of experts. The biggest mistakes I've ever made in my life were listening to experts. Like if you want to build a bridge and you want to know what the calculations are for a particular type of, you know, I-beam, talk to an expert. But if you're trying to figure out, let's say, even a legal strategy in a lawsuit, a lot of times the, the experts don't know what the hell they're doing because they generally don't think outside of the box. But I can tell you it's exhilarating to, to run a race. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of nonstop action. One thing I'm very proud of in the race is I couldn't figure out how to get press because I'm in Philadelphia, Democratic town, Democratic, liberal-leaning press, They won't write about me. I'm a Republican TV, reality TV star, you know, and named Raj Bakta, by the way. Mm -hmm. And they had already written that story before they had even listened to Word One, and it wasn't a good story. So I have to get some national press. Border security is polling high in the district, suburban Philadelphia, oddly enough. And so I took an elephant with a mariachi band playing, a 12-piece mariachi band playing across the Rio Grande. And that got, you know, national attention, that front page of the New York Times, all over the news. That was a cool thing. And I lost that race, which losing political races is not fun. It is not fun. I can tell you that. You put a lot of time, you put a lot of effort, and you put a lot of money. You put your heart and your soul into it. And of course, nobody likes to lose uh, anything. But something like that certainly is, I understand, could be crushing. But... You picked yourself up, you dusted yourself off. And what led you up to Vermont? So how did you get from running for Congress to the world of Vermont? And I think a lot of it, if I believe, started with your passion for rye. And I would love for you to explain the difference between rye and whiskey and bourbon. We'll talk about that a little bit, and then we'll get into, you know, specifically brandy and Raj Bhakta Bhakta 50. Yeah, so in fact... Mitchell was losing the race for Congress that landed me on a farm in Vermont. I had a little segue where I was off looking for Steve Irwin's replacement who had just died by taking a stingray 
right. a blade to the heart. And I wanted in, to find in, you know, a guy from the jungles of India to replace him because I thought that'd be a hell of a character. And then I looked a little bit about, you know, at the religious entrepreneurship as a business, let's say, from some of the gurus in, uh, in India, but uh, decided not to get in that business for that line of work, let's say. And came back to America, didn't know what to do, bought a farm in Vermont. This is 2007. Race was 2006, 2008. The economy tanks, as you know. Now I really got to figure out how to make my farm operate. My back's to the wall again, and I have a 500-acre former dairy farm. What do I do? And I went back into the portfolio of things that I knew really well. And uh, for better or for worse, Mitch, I knew high-end whiskey inside out. I had tasted every bourbon. I had tasted every scotch. You know, I really knew it. And I, I'm very patriotic. I was like, why, does it, why isn't there an American whiskey brand like McCallum? Right. And there was no good reason. There was really no good reason. So I set off to create an American brand that was as high-end and fantastic, frankly, as McAllen is. You know, they just, I want to jump in because I had a recent interview and I was thinking of you during this interview. You really are the Thomas Jefferson of, of rye and now... I think you're going to be the Thomas Jefferson of Brandy, but I interviewed Fred Ryan. He worked for President Reagan. He was his chief of staff after he retired, but he's now, I believe, a publisher and CEO of the Washington Post, but he's also the head of the White House Historical Association. Anyway, it's a long walk around to tell you that he wrote this book called White House and Wine, and he talked specifically about how much that Jefferson was bringing all of these wines and Franklin from France and then Jefferson really was the first to begin the idea, just to begin the idea. It took a long time to really get there, but to begin the idea of making America competitive in the wine world in California. So there's an interesting contrast there. No, that's true. That's and it, true. Took, it took, it actually took Nixon and Reagan to really get California wine on the map. That's right. That was right. And then, uh, you know, a couple of surprise verdicts by this French uh, snob wine community that the American wine tasted better than what they had. Right. But yeah, so it's the same thing, right? There was no good reason. In fact, we had a better product, which was rye whiskey as a base. So you, you would ask what's, what's, you know, whiskey, very broadly speaking, is made from grain. So it's a distilled beer. All right. Now there are a couple of different types and I'll Positive to brandy is distilled fruit. So grapes, apples, peaches, plums, et cetera. You distill those, you get brandy. You distill wheat, barley, rye, corn, you get a whiskey, all right? The corn is the sweetest of them. That makes bourbon. Barley is probably the most uh, mellow of them. That makes scotch and Irish. Mm-hmm. And then rye was originally a very popular category, but for whatever reason died out, is the spiciest, most flavorful of them, which is what you want in a whiskey, right? You want flavor, you want spice. And that was gone. And we brought it back. I found a great stash of rye in Western Canada, actually, 10 years and older, and partnered with a famous master distiller, brought that back to the farm in Vermont, backed into production, and it's the so it was like this surprise find of this great old stash of rye 
that launched Whistlepig. And a similar, in this case, more amazing find of Brandy, in this case, in a sleepy corner of France, Armagnac, that's launched Bakta. So, you know, I guess it's all about being on the lookout for the rare and the exquisite and where are their unappreciated gems in the spirits world. That's what I like to focus on. Well, you also came up with a very underappreciated name and, you know, became obviously a big brand. And if I'm out there walking my dog, listening to this podcast, I want to know where you came up with the name Whistlepig to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a funny one. I was, wa- <laughs> I was walking in the Rockies. Okay. I was mm-hmm. walking in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And a man flies down the mountain. He's flying down on a bike, you know, on this on a single track mountain bike. And he's got no protective equipment on whatsoever. He's got this big shock of white hair. He's a guy in his early 60s, stops the bike. I sometimes say he effectively popped out of a bush, which is what it felt like. He stops <laughs> the thing right in front of me, gets two inches from my face and says, could it be? Is it big? With this very squeaky, <laughs> high-pitched French accent. <laughs> mm. Of course, you know, I think he's, I don't know what the hell he's talking about, right? Whoever heard of a whistle? He's really close up into my personal space and there's no reason to be it. And he keeps repeating the question, smacking his like fingers up in my face. (laughs) So at a certain point, I said, what in the hell are you talking about? And he just sort of waved off in that classic French (laughs) manner and Mm -hmm. took off down the hill. So I thought this is God talking to me, wants me to do something with the name. And uh, was probably six, seven years later that I bought the farm in Vermont and called it Whistlepig. Such a great story. I love it. It's the accidental entrepreneur, you know? I mean, it's just these things that happen. If you had to say what the secret sauce was for Whistlepig, the go-to rye so quickly for people that really know their whiskey. I mean, you're talking about some major competitions in the world suddenly taking notice and obviously some major bars and restaurants and obviously consumers. I owe a lot to my master distiller, a guy named Dave Pickerel. God rest his soul. He died a couple of years ago. He really brought a lot of enthusiasm and his expertise and his reputation to bear on behalf of Whistlepig and, you know, traveled the country and talked about it, you know, in front of everybody he could get in front of. And that was an element... So, you know, the best juice, the best whiskey, fantastic master distiller, magic name, farm to bottle at the right time as we're backing into it, a whole number of things, you know, got the timing right. Yeah, exactly. And before you knew it, you got a million cases a year being sold. And, you know, obviously that doesn't happen overnight. That comes with a lot of hard work and a lot of hustle. And I think that's a true credit to you for what you accomplished. So eventually as happens in, uh, in businesses, investment banking firms or come around. And was it a difficult decision to, to let it go? Yeah, it was, uh, I would say, excruciating. But, you know, look, sometimes we have a tendency, and I say we because I don't think it's just me, that we wrap ourselves too much into a business uh, and that becomes our identity. And it's just not the case. You know, it's a business. Uh, business is supposed to give you uh, joy and happiness and fulfillment and money, right? That's a, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a good reason, too. And it had ceased for me to do a lot of that. 
you know, it came to that, made the decision that it's, you know, time to move on. But it was a very tough decision and it took me a long time to get there. But I'm very glad I did it. I'm very glad I did it because now it's total freedom. And I've got something in Bakta where I don't have any partners, where I can focus on delivering the greatest value in the world of spirits to the consumer and, you know, finding undiscovered gems like the Armagnac. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it all works out. So let's go uh, have you take us back to uh, spirit school and tell us about the history of Armagnac and, and the journey that led you to realize that, you know, you, you found this next big thing so rare and exquisite that people, let's say like me, will want to drink it. As a matter of fact, I've poured myself a glass of Bacta 50, which I've been waiting all day for and now going to enjoy while you tell the story and a little bit of the history. And you, you and I both share being history buffs. And I love, I love the history part of the story. Yeehaw! Armagnac is actually the oldest region of spirits making in the world. The Romans brought grapes to France. When did Caesar conquer Gaul? Uh, you know, a little bit before Christ was born. Yeah, about and, 30, 40 years, you know, something. Yeah. And then the Arabs actually brought to that area their alambic distillation equipment. I mean, of course, the Roman Empire falls. So they brought it to the, probably around 1300, 1200, 1300. And that's the time that they started distilling in this region. So it was one of the first areas of distillation in Europe. And the amazing thing to me, absolutely astonishing thing to me is that this category has never really exploded on the global stage. And again, this is one of those accidents of history. It's from a, it's from a rich part of France, like agriculturally rich. It is econ- So they don't really need to be exporting much product because they got plenty of great food and, and great you know, native wealth. So they don't need to be hustling in the same way. They were not connected like Bordeaux was as a port city. So it wasn't getting exported in the same way that that cognac was. And so you have this just this accidental category of exquisite spirit that is ancient that just never got known. And so, you know, I'll read you another quote from the booklet, because this is what blows me away here. The outside of the quality, here's an opportunity to taste time. And see, the age statement on this bottle could be given not in terms of years, but in terms of generations. The oldest grapes were harvested in 1867 and were crushed in wooden vats by the nimble feet of French children whose grandchildren are now themselves dead and gone. Let that sink in for a moment. Let's imagine their world. The planet was dominated by emperors and kings in Europe, whose forefathers had long ascended to the top of the greasy pole of power. A guy named Napoleon III was emperor of France when this was distilled in 1868, and Queen Victoria was in the middle of her reign. That's the oldest stuff. And the youngest stuff in the bottle is 50 years old, you know, which was about the time when America went to the moon, 1969-70. So, you know, this spirit, Bakta, distilled of grape, and this is a big thing I go to. Like you asked me, what's the, you know, grape versus grain, brandy versus whiskey. I think of it very simply. It's like you want to go and pick up a fresh peach and eat it or a fresh 
grape, uh, ripe grape needed, or do you want to chew ripe grain? You know, you want to pick some, mm. some some corn off the husk, or do you want, or do you want grapes? And I think that fruit isn't just an inherently more exquisite, delightful base from which to make an exquisite spirit. Absolutely, absolutely, the fruit of the vine. Fruit of the vine. Uh, True, or fruit of the loom, but that's a whole separate uh, category. So you did a lot of traveling when you started doing this. You went to Scotland and obviously back to India and, and the Philippines and the Caribbean. And eventually you got to the countryside of France. You spent a lot of time on the road doing this research on this journey. And this is when you started buying some of the barrels. Yeah, so I started buying barrels. I, I started in, in whiskey, and I found whiskey overall to be in a big bubble. I mean, prices were high, and production was through the roof, and it was really tough to figure out where I could deliver great value to the consumer. And I was looking from an investment standpoint at the same thing like we did in Rye, where I could buy enough of a small category where you could control you know, the age statements in that. And so if you built a great category, you had protection because you had built a category that you could protect because now if you want 10, 15 year old rye whiskey, right? Whistle pig is the only game in town. Looking for the same thing. I didn't find it in whiskey at all. I found, bought some rum in the Caribbean. I bought some whiskey actually in India as well as Scotland, but it was, it all lined up in the perfect scale in Armagnac where whether it was age that you were looking for, which is really the ultimate, you know, it's really what people should pay for in a spirit. If you look at all the auctions, if you look at everything, it's really always the oldest stuff that people want. And it's for good reason. It generally gets better. There are exceptions to this. You really don't want very old bourbon. You don't, don't buy a bourbon over 15 years old. Definitely don't do that. You may get a couple of barrels here and there over 15 years that are good, but you know, scotch, scotch really, I think, starts becoming really, really great at maybe 15 years and, you know, improves to 30 or 40 years, depending on the barrel. This particular Armagnac is a product that I think, you know, really peaks at 60 or 70 years for a couple of different reasons. It's the type of spirit, it's the type of barrel, but it's always age that you want in the pinnacle of the world of spirits. If I go to you, Mitch, and I said, hey, I've got a, I got a 10-year product, I've got a 30-year product, and I've got a 60-year product, you know, and they've waited this long, it's a whiskey or it's a brandy or anything, which one do you want to try? I, you know, I mean, obviously, you think 60 because for some reason we've been taught to think that, you know, if something's sat around, it might be very special. But in reality, it's probably 10, I would, I would think. You want the oldest one. Yeah. We crave the oldest one. And you're right. In certain cases, it's not always the best. In the case of Armagnac, it is. Right. I would say up to about 100 years. Wow. But we always we always want the stuff that's waited around for a whole long time to touch our lips. So let's talk about Box of Spirits. You talked about your mission earlier. You read that nice excerpt from what comes with the bottle. It's a beautiful, beautiful, almost a biblical in nature, but really gives you a, a history of the bottle that you're drinking and, and what was going on during those 50 different years. But let's talk about it as a business. What's kind of up your sleeve and get as far as your game plan on, on the arc of the business for, the, for, let's say, the next couple of years and what, what some of your plans are? Now, so I call it the 250 plan. 
There are 125 individuals who I will hand select who will become stockholders. And that's basically, I came up with this stockholder program, Mitch, because I had a, a lot of people, my friends and family who had done very, very well in their investment at Whistlepig wanted to invest in what I was doing next. I didn't want to sell equity. I didn't want to keep up with the cap table. I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to take outside money. But at the same time, I wanted to show these folks, my friends and family, literally, who had believed in me. And I wanted them to participate in the next thing for fun, for, you know, a whole bunch of reasons. But I didn't want to sell equity. So I thought of something better where I would sell them the actual stocks of the old bottles at my low introductory, at low prices, basically, which make them an owner of the actual physical inventory and effectively of the brand. And this stuff, which I'm now selling, you know, started at $250 a bottle this summer. It's now $300 a bottle. I expect it will be over $1,000 a bottle, well over $1,000 a bottle and not too long, in, you know, the medium term. The why not give them the product? So 125 stockholders where you can buy collections of different vintages, two bottles of each barrel that we're putting out. Anyway, it's an investment program. Mm -hmm. So write people in that in 125 accounts. You know, keep it small, grow it slow. I have a very small inventory, but get it into the hands of the right people who share it with their friends and family. That's the business plan, you know. And it's about a 500 bottle collection, Roughly, is that there are different collections. So yeah. the first stockholder collection is a it's a twenty thousand dollar program, and you get two bottles of each barrel. So there are thirty eight barrels coming out of the beginning. You get a bottle of each, so that's seventy six bottles. Then there's like a a collection of the nineteenth century collection, which is all the vintages between eighteen sixty eight and nineteen hundred, and then the then the twentieth century, nineteen hundred to 2000, and there's a three century collection, and it goes from 20,000 up to 300,000, depending on which bottles and collections you want. You know, one of the things that's really so wonderful about what you're doing, and, and, and I think, you know, this is just part of your arc, is that you're creating something all of your own, not at all in the standard category. Yeah, as a business owner, why do you think that's critical? I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of individual stories that probably go along the same line, but just curious your thoughts on that. Well, I think it's what fires me up. I love the idea of reviving things. You know, I grew up in Philadelphia and I was a kid in the eighties and I was watching a city crumbling around me and I would see these great old buildings and factories and, you know, just in states of decay. And I would, you know, dream of bringing them back. So there's this romantic strain that likes to see things brought back to life. And I did that with rye whiskey, which was a gone and forgotten category, a great category, brought it back. We're doing it now with Armagnac, but that's what I love. It's probably not a good idea for most people to go out on these quests to revive the dead because they may be dead for good reason. But I think I have a talent for and a passion for finding the incorrectly overlooked for the you know accidents of history which happen mm -hmm. and and picking those gems up and then sharing them with people and that's what i do in spirits 
Well, you're also doing it in education. You are sitting in the president's office of Green Mountain College, a beautiful college, beautiful campus, but unfortunately closed its doors a few years ago, something like that, Raj. Mm -hmm. And you, um, being a busy guy and loving uh, this area, you've gone out and bought this institution. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I'm in the center of um, an almost 200-year-old, beautiful educational institution, Green Mountain College. And I love beautiful real estate. So that was definitely one piece of it. And the other piece of it, Mitch, that drove me, I was like, look, I don't need to tell you. I think every single one of your listeners and anybody, anybody, actually anybody, knows that higher education in this country is very severely broken that we're spending a huge amount of money for a pretty bad outcome, actually a horrible outcome. If you actually think about the brainwashing that goes on to a lot of a lot of our poor young kids. Are, are, you, are you speaking specifically about debt? I'm so speaking about well, debt is one yeah. piece of it. I yeah. mean, on one part, you're borrowing big money to go out with no skills. On the other hand, people are getting a political indoctrination. I mean, you're supposed to be like indoctrination. You're supposed to go to school to have an open mind, you know, to learn about all sorts of different points, to be able to debate an issue dispassionately from five different sides. Instead, our kids are coming to school with like lists of words that they can't use and conversations that they can't have and topics that they can't bring up. I mean, it's like a, it's the exact opposite of what should happen in a, in a higher educational institution. We should encourage true diversity of thought and opinion and all those things, and the exact opposite's happening. So, you know, largely thinking like the last thing I'd want to do is send my kids to an Ivy League institution and, I'm, you know, they should be able to get into them. It would be the last thing that I wanted to do. So create an alternate school where kids are getting a very marketable education. Like just as an example, just look at the business that I'm in, beverage alcohol. It's a $1 trillion global industry. There's no school attached to it. Cornell's got a great hospitality school. Johnson & Wales is a great culinary program and hospitality school. But I actually think alcohol is probably a bigger business when you look at the whole world. At least it's you know, I don't know the numbers on it, but if I, but I bet right now, if you did world's beverage alcohol companies by market cap versus hospitality companies, the beverage alcohol companies are worth more. Plenty of hospitality schools, no beverage alcohol schools. Many reasons for that, but here is an example. We can put together the, you know, a, a very, very, and we're doing that first, a very credible program where students can come in, learn about this business that I know very well, and get a job, and maybe get into the business. Study entrepreneurship, study about what makes a magic brand, what makes it tick, how distribution works, you know, all these different elements where just in that particular area, we can give uh, students a terrific education with a great outcome on the other side. And at the same time, have a place where they can actually listen to a diversity of opinions. So I think they'll be happier, better educated citizens and more prosperous. When do you uh, anticipate Opening the doors. I know that's hard in the middle of a global pandemic. (laughs) This whole virus situation has thrown things a little bit into a uh, flux for us all, but Mm -hmm. I'm still planning for next year, 2021. Terrific. Well, we're really anxious to to see what you're going to do there and what the curriculum is. And I also want to point out to our listeners that 
and we will link to uh, Bhakta's website. Some really beautiful videos there, not just the countryside, but as a history person and understanding debate, and you just talked about that, there's a really great performance that you call your heritage performance. And I, I kind of sense an acting bug in you as well. Is anything about those videos you, you want to share? Or we look at uh, maybe more of those? Well, it's really fun. The, that we created, that was a lot of fun. Well, there, yeah, there are those videos where we created this parliamentary debate of whiskey versus brandy in the style of like, you know, the British parliament inside of a barn. Right. In my barn in Vermont in the summer of 2020 over the 4th of July. It was just a fun extemporaneous debate of, you know, what the, the whiskey vanguard or old guard would say about the brandy vanguard and vice versa. But if you want to see like a brand owner in action with some like personality, in addition to the greatest value in the world of spirits, you should take a look at it. You get a kick out of it. If you don't like it, don't buy the whiskey. Don't buy the brandy. How's your family like the farm life? You know, is it is it a Green Acres kind of a situation? Uh, if you remember the old TV show. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, they love it. It's a great way to raise kids, Mitch. You know, right. it's a great way to raise kids. They, my daughters go out and they collect the eggs that we have for breakfast. And they learn that, you know, the very basics that if you want food, you have to work. And that for everything that we get, that we need to put something into the receiving of it, that if you want to, you know, harvest, that you need to sow. And I try to, you know, instill that wisdom and nature into the kids and remind myself because we've grown so, so detached from where we feed ourselves. And the results are pretty disastrous, aren't they? I mean, yeah. look at the gigantic, yeah. fact, sick nation that we have. Mm, so true. So I like to end my interviews with entrepreneurs and CEOs with, a, with kind of stealing a page, so to speak, from Tim Ferriss's tribe of mentors and kind of ask you a simple question that's really not so simple, but I'd love to hear what you have to say. So you're granted, Raj, this giant billboard you get to put any message to the world on it. What would it be and why? This is actually a pretty, I've thought about this in the sense of what's it all about right now. And I wrote this down actually. And so I'll go back to take a page out of my own book and answer you with this. It's revival. The answer <laughs> is revival. And I write it here, like this bottle to me, my brandy, as I was thinking about this in the middle of the pandemic, is a monument to revival. The spirits herein were born, they lived, they were forgotten. Long have they lain in the cave, now they are arisen. They say we cannot buy time, here is an exception. Time in a bottle and all the wisdom that comes with it. So look up to the heavens, to personal ennoblement, to the revival of our country and our civilization. Where we look, so shall we go. There has never been a better time to be alive. Bhakta is about the revival of good and ancient spirits. May this bottle revive yours. I love that. And that's a word that we all could use. Boy, could we use that word in so many ways. Raj, thank you so much. And congratulations on this beautiful new spirit. I've been fortunate enough to have been enjoying it the last few weeks and allowing some very, very special friends of mine, because 
been really picky with some people who know a lot about spirits and have worked in and out of the industry and, and the reviews have all been through the roof. And I am confident that the world's going to be talking about Bacta 50 for some time and also talking about Armagnac. And maybe they're going to go to Green Mountain College and they're going to go out and Kick talk about it even more. So <laughs> we're going to link to the site, but I am sure those listening, there's probably someone thinking, well, how do I get a bottle? So what, what would you say to that listener? You can get it on, uh, go to baktabrandy.com and there'll be like a buy here link and it'll take you to a retailer that you can buy it on. Terrific. Terrific. Well, I look forward to when things get a little crazy and, and coming up to visit your farm. Uh, you've been generous in inviting me up there and I'm really looking forward to really seeing it and, and seeing the college and, you know, you're doing some really, really, really great things and, and your story, your story is a great story. Uh, Thank I really you. appreciate you sharing it. Thank you, Mitch. We'll have you on campus now, too. Uh, you have a good evening. All right. Well, thanks to the folks that Resonate Recording. And as we say at the end of our show every week, when it comes to saving for your future and buying beautiful bottles of brandy like Bacta 50, pay yourself first. Have a great week. Bye.